everyone officially and formally. Let's begin with an invocation in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome to all of you to our Foundations of Faith class, which is based on the small catechism. And that's going to be uh, the majority of the class today is simply an, an intro or for many of you a reintroduction to the small catechism. We are in this class using the 2017 edition, which is the most recent to come out from Concordia Publishing House. If you have an older edition, you shouldn't be troubled much because um, this, is, this truly is going to be a class where we're just teaching the fundamentals and the foundations rather than going in, into much depth. If you are using, um, I have here the small size of Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions. If you are using this or the larger size of the book, um, at least in this, I assume it's true in the other, you have the catechism proper, the small catechism itself, um, along with the table of duties uh, and Dr. Luther's preface, but you don't have any of the explanation or any of the appendices, etc. So just to make you aware of what you have, if you already have this at home, uh, great. If not, you really should. Uh, it's a great resource. You can pick up these little ones for like 20 bucks, I think. They're great. Carry them everywhere. And... Uh, sitting in line for a shot or whatever the case may be. And then I don't, I don't know what the, what the latest going price is on these, um, probably between 15 and $20 for uh, the 2017 small catechism. But this too is well worth it because in the explanation they put a bunch of contemporary questions and issues. It was recently updated uh, to really address some of the things we're struggling with as Christians in our culture. And, in what, in what ways can we look back to the scriptures and see answers to our modern questions and our modern problems? So I highly commend uh, this to you. This is what I use for our 7th and 8th grade confirmation class, so they all, have to, they all have to have one of these of their own. So just to give you an overview and a reminder of what this is, in this specific version, it, you know, it, looks, it looks somewhat large. The truth is the catechism proper is in this text from page 13 through page 40. That's it. So if you're looking at this great big text, relatively big text, this is the small catechism and its basic components. So when we refer to the small catechism, in its proper sense, it's really just these pages that we're talking about. What the rest of this text is, is an explanation that basically takes the exact framework of these uh, pages and of these articles, the six chief parts, and blows them up with all kinds of additional questions, Bible references, information, curiosities, etc. So that's really the nature of your explanation to the small catechism. Simply one additional thing to point out, and that is, uh, particularly in this 2017 edition, there is a wonderful appendix attached. And 
I will simply share with you, if you do have a copy of this with you, um, you can turn to the very end of the table of contents. This appendix has a number of, of great things. I'll just read some of them to you. Uh, first, an answer just very plainly to who is Jesus. Uh, a section on reading God's Word, so basic hermeneutics. Um, what is worship? So a teaching on what the divine service is. Uh, further teaching on simple prayer. There's an outline of salvation. Of course, you have Luther's preface, which we'll get to in just a moment here. And then you also have an explanation of Luther's seal. Have you seen Luther's rose, that seal? Um, I think it's got a black cross and a white rose, if memory serves. Um, you can find out about the symbolism and history of Luther's seal. The books of the Bible are also listed for your convenience to memorize or rememorize. Relive those anxious seventh grade years when you were in the back of the minivan getting driven to confirmation class, desperately cramming. I attribute this to most of our success in the Lutheran Church, academically speaking, uh, because this has great merits. Last minute cramming for confirmation translates right into high school and college. You also have this great section, it's not lengthy, but it is a great section, touching on the time between the Testaments. Uh, everyone is always interested in that 432 to 5 BC, what goes on there. You have uh, the church year laid out uh, in a simple to understand way. You have terms, so you have a kind of glossary, uh, terms relating to worship and God's house. You have symbols and their meanings, which I actually went through these with the kids in confirmation because if you, you know, not that you'd ever get bored in church, but if you, if you did maybe have your mind wander a little, you can simply look around. Our, a congregation like ours is blessed to have stained glass windows, and in many of the stained glass windows, there's Christian art and specifically uh, symbolic art. Around the season of Christmas, we have the Christmas tree up with chrismons, and chrismons are almost always symbolic or iconic in nature. There's more there that meets the eye. But then also the paraments, that's the linens that are draped over the altar and uh, the pulpit up front and even on the pastor's stole. These are often covered in different Christian symbols. So to exercise your mind in terms of what has the artist uh, got in mind in terms of what they're trying to do. And many times they've woven together like two or three different, uh, different themes. I, what comes to mind, we have, the, we have this very unique and beautiful pyramid for the Advent season. Um, it's our blues. And you've got the Ark of the Covenant uh, with the two angel wings, with the, uh, that is with the, um, the cherubim on the Ark. But the artist has stylized them in such a way that it becomes a Christmas tree uh, outlined on the, uh, the pyramid. So you can see there just how the artist is playing with multiple meanings and causing you to stretch your thinking. In what way is the coming of Christ like the mercy seat of God? So a beautiful section there on, on Christian art and the symbolism therein. Um, likewise, there is a catechism glossary. So... Uh, wider conceptually 
as well as scriptural index and index of topics. So if you've got a, if you've got a question on something, even something quite contemporary, you can go to that index of, of topics and then find where it is in the catechism, how the catechism treats it, what scripture verses you can draw on. You know, particularly good for you if you are a parent or a grandparent um, and child, grandchildren are asking you some difficult question. You want to give them a good, faithful, biblical answer. You know, the pastor hasn't responded in, in the last 20 minutes to your fresh email, uh, and you need an answer. Uh, you, can, you can utilize this. You guys are laughing since COVID. I've been so overwhelmed, and you're lucky to get a response in 20 days. Uh, sorry about that. But, um, yeah, this is a wonderful resource as far as that goes as well. So, again, just to, just to reorient you to, to what's in your hand with this book, you have the, the Catechism proper, which is very small, you know, 27 pages-ish, um, pages 13 through 40. And then, and then this great big explanation, everything blown out and expanded. And then um, this wonderful appendix, which gives you all this information. Okay, any questions or comments on that, or are we good so far? So far, so good. Let's go on to the catechism proper. And to do this, I'm going to let, I'm going to let Dr. Luther uh, give, his, give his own preface. Now, this is written to pastors. It's spicy. It's spicy and wonderful. So in your 2017 catechism, in your other catechisms, you know, earlier than this, I think it's in there. I just don't know where it is off the top of my head. I think, I think it's retained. Um, in your 2017 catechism, it's on page 363. They buried it in the back because it's a little too spicy for 2017 Lutherans. In the, uh, in the Book of Concord, this mini edition, I am finding it on page 446. And if I'm not mistaken, that gives a reference to page 313 in the large edition. The, lar the large edition of Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions. All right, Luther's preface. You're going to find some interesting things here. Um, boy, I should have checked this right before the class. If I'm not mistaken, the small catechism, it's probably in the front here. The small catechism is um, written in 1529. Mm, that's from memory, though, so if I'm a little off, but I... I think that's, wait, 15, is that right, 1529? All right, I've got it confirmed. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so let's, let's go with 1529. And, uh, of course, nailing of the 95 Theses, um, 1517. So you're talking about, you know, oh, just over a decade uh, later, but the Reformation is full on its way. So you're going to be interested by some of the things you hear in Luther's preface. Martin Luther, to all faithful and godly pastors and preachers, grace, mercy, and peace in Jesus Christ our Lord. The deplorable, miserable condition that I discovered recently. <laughs> How's that? How's that for a beginning? The deplorable, miserable condition that I discovered recently when I too was a visitor. Now this is, this is, uh, not like Luther went on an incognito trip to the various congregations pretending to be a visitor to see how their greeters were doing. That's, no. Um, he, went, he went out in an official theological capacity, much as our circuit visitors today are supposed to do. They're supposed to visit. They're supposed to catch you at random, preaching from the pulpit. They're supposed to see if you're preaching Christ and Him crucified. 
Um, and if not, they're supposed to recommend some things that you might read in order to better do that. Well, Luther goes on one of these tours, and this is, this is his report, as it were. So, mid-sentence, I too was a visitor, um, has forced and urged me to prepare this catechism or Christian doctrine in this small, plain, simple form. So, catechisms themselves are very, very old. Um, catechism, if you break it down, is like kata echo. It's, it's where we get our word from echo, the echoing back. And it's this question and answer form. You know, what does this mean? And then the student echoes back the meaning. And so, this back and forth. Catechisms are very, very old. This is hardly the first catechism in the church. In fact, the earliest catechism in the church is the Didache, which this hall is named after, right? So first century catechism, the Didache, you can look it up and read it. It's marvelous. And ever since, there was Christian catechisms, handbooks of doctrine and practice arranged in many and various ways, all the way up until the po point in time of Luther and the Reformation. And the Reformation was well on its way. And Luther says, we need a catechism for those of our people, those who are with us. Okay? So thus, thus, catechism or Christian doctrine is how Luther thinks of this, this text. He continues, mercy, dear God, what great misery I beheld. The common person, especially in the villages, has no knowledge whatever of Christian doctrine. And unfortunately, many pastors are completely unable and unqualified to teach. This is so much so that one is ashamed to speak of it. Yet everyone says that they are Christians, have been baptized, and receive the holy sacraments, even though they cannot even recite the Lord's Prayer or the Creed or the Ten Commandments. All right, well, let's stop there. So, of course, in Luther's day, virtually everyone is baptized at birth and brought up in the church. So we have to acknowledge the different context in which he's working. But what doesn't change is his expectation of what it means to be a Christian. And his very basic expectation is that every Christian knows by heart the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. If you don't, ouch, I know that stings, but that's okay. This is what this class is for. And there could not be a better time of the year to do this as we're going into the Lenten season to pause, take time. Now, when you think about memorizing too, you might be thinking that Luther means not only the commandments, but also the meanings to the commandments. You know, the what does this mean? And not only the creed, but also the meanings of the creed and so on and so forth. No, that's actually not what Luther is after at this point. Simply the text direct from the scripture and the liturgy, the, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. And by the way, if you, if you really know these to the point where, I mean, you can say them with, with intention and meaning. You're not just rambling them off. You, you can recite them with intention and meaning. Um, you, can get, you can get through all three of those in under a minute. So it's not this great laborious task. But again, what would, what would Luther, the reformer, the namesake of our church, what would he recommend all Christians know? These three texts. The commandments, the creed, and the Lord's Prayer. Okay. He continues, 
they live like dumb brutes and irrational hogs. Now, I would get a visit from my district president if I spoke in these terms, but Luther was his own man. Now, this is an insightful, this is an insightful critique. Now that the gospel has come, they have nicely learned to abuse all freedom like experts. See, even in Luther's day, this was, I mean, even just a decade after the, after the Reformation began, this was a concern. For freedom Christ has set you free, only do not use that freedom to indulge the flesh, Paul writes. And this is Luther's critique. So no sooner than people grasp hold of the, of the gospel and are freed from the Pope, they decide, hey, that means I'm freed from being a Christian too. <laughs> so this is, this is a really interesting critique really early on in the Reformation. Now that the gospel has come, they have nicely learned to abuse all freedom like experts. O bishops, what answer will you ever give to Christ for having so shamefully neglected the people and never for a moment fulfilled your office? May all misfortune run from you. I do not wish at this place to call down evil on your heads. You command the sacrament in one form. What's that a reference to? Right. At that time in the, in the Roman Catholic Church and largely still today, um, it is just the, the host for the laity and the, and the host and the cups for the priest. So this is, this is obviously in violation of Christ's words where he says to all take, eat, and take, drink. And so this is an aberrant practice. And Luther, Luther's very sharp-tongued, sharp-penned critique here is not only are you not doing the things you should be doing, but you're inventing things you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> So, you command the sacrament in one form and insist on your human laws. And remember how they were insisting upon these human laws. In order to merit salvation. You had to obey and do all these rites and things in the church. Even, even absolution was turned into that. It still is today. You have, to go to, you have to go to confession once a year, I think, as a Roman Catholic. So, these are man-made, man-made laws. Luther continues, and yet at the same time you do not care at all whether the people know the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, the Ten Commandments, or any part of God's Word. Woe, woe to you forever. Therefore I beg you all for God's sake, my dear sirs and brethren who are pastors or preachers, to devote yourselves heartily to your office. Have pity on the people who are entrusted to you and help us teach the catechism to the people. Now, what does Luther mean by the catechism? Help us teach the catechism. Does he mean this book that I've written and concocted? Um, you know, sell more books for me? <laughs> no, what he means very plainly by the catechism here is simply the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. Nothing added to it. That's what he means by the catechism and by teaching the catechism. Okay? So, there's sort of even a catechism within the catechism, if you will, and that is these three texts. 
He continues, and let those of you who cannot do better take these tables and forms and impress them word for word on the people as follows. In the first place, let the preacher above all be careful to avoid many versions or various texts and forms of the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, the Sacraments, and such. He should choose one form to which he holds and teaches all the time, year after year. For young and simple people must be taught by uniform, settled texts and forms. Otherwise, they become confused easily when the teacher today teaches them one way and in a year some other way, as if he wished to make improvements. For then, all effort and labor that has been spent in teaching is lost. And we really haven't heeded Luther's advice. Because we've switched from NIV to ESV, and even in our liturgical formulations, we've switched and changed them in confusing ways. The Lord be with you. I just heard two different versions. Yeah. And also with you and with thy spirit. You see, so when we monkey around with this, we get confuddled. In one of our liturgies, it's temporal, and in another of our liturgies, it's present. And so now I say temporal all the time. Great. So Luther urges us to, as much as possible, keep the text the same. He continues, Our blessed fathers understood this well also. They also used the same form of the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, and the Ten Commandments. Therefore we too should be at pains to teach the young and simple people these parts in such a way that we do not change a syllable or set them forth and repeat them one year differently than in another. Therefore, choose whatever form you please and hold to it forever, but when you preach in the presence of learned and intelligent people, you may show your skill. You may present these parts in varied and intricate ways and give them as masterly turns as you are able. But with the young people, stick to one fixed, permanent form and manner. Teach them, first of all, these parts, the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and so on, according to the text, word for word, so that they too can repeat it in the same way after you and commit it to memory. But those who are unwilling to learn the catechism should be told that they deny Christ and are not Christians. All right, again, what's he talking about? The Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. True, I mean, very hard to argue with. That if you don't know these, then how on earth could you claim to be a Christian? So Luther, those who are unwilling to learn the catechism should be told that they deny Christ and are not Christians. I mean, we could add in here too, unwilling to learn. If there are those who are unable to learn, obviously there's grace given. They should not be admitted to the sacrament, Luther says. Luther is, is always eye-opening, isn't he? Because we sort of come to this idea of we think we know who Luther is, and then you actually read Luther and you realize, yeah, maybe not so much. You can't come to the sacrament unless you know these three texts by heart. Luther. They should not be admitted to the sacrament except it as sponsors at baptism or practice any part of Christian freedom. They should simply be turned back to the Pope and his officials, indeed to the devil himself. 
Furthermore, their parents and employers should refuse them food and drink. <laughs> and notify them that the prince will drive such rude people from the country. Boy, in our day and age, <laughs> you're likely to get driven for the, from the country for completely opposite reasons, aren't you? Uh, although we cannot and should not force anyone to believe, we should insist and encourage the people. That way they will know what is right and wrong for those among whom they dwell and wish to make their living. Now what is this knowing what's right and wrong about? What's, what's giving Christians in their everyday lives this knowledge of what's right and wrong? The Ten Commandments. Yeah, that's how Luther envisions the Ten Commandments being used by Christians, to be able to discern in their daily lives what's right and wrong. The, the commandments are God's gift and tool for doing that very thing. He continues, For whoever desires to live in a town must know and observe the town laws, because he wishes to enjoy the protection offered by the laws, whether he is a believer or at heart, uh, or at heart and in private, a rascal or a rogue. So, in other words, Luther's comment here, either way you've got to know them if you want to be in the church, whether you believe them or not. Preferably you believe them. <laughs> in the second place, after they have learned the text well, teach them the meaning also, so that they know what it means. Again, choose the form of these tables or some other brief uniform method, whichever you like, and hold to it. Do not change a single syllable, as was just said about the text. Take your time in doing this, for it is not necessary for you to explain all the parts at once, but one after the other. After they understand the first commandment well, then explain the second, and so on. Otherwise, they will be overwhelmed so that they will not be able to remember anything well. In the third place, after you have taught them this short catechism, then take up the large catechism, and give them also a richer and fuller knowledge. Here enlarge upon every commandment, article, petition, and part with its various works, uses, benefits, dangers, and injuries, as you find these abundantly stated in many books written about these matters. In particular, urge the commandment or part that most suffers the greatest neglect among your people. For example, the seventh commandment about stealing, must be strongly urged among communists. Oh, I'm sorry, it says mechanics <laughs> and merchants and even farmers and servants. For among these people, many kinds of dishonesty and stealing prevail. Well, I've never experienced that at a car dealership, have you? <laughs> so, too, you must drive home the fourth commandment among the children and the common people so that they may be quiet and faithful obedient and peaceable, you must always offer many examples from the scriptures to show how God has punished or blessed such persons. And Luther articulates this, again, controversially to our ears, though it shouldn't be. He, he articulates this in the large catechism, as, as you have seen. Um, God brings temporal punishments and rewards upon us if we obey or disobey his commandments. And the scriptures are filled with examples. Okay, in this matter you should especially urge magistrates and parents 
to rule well and to send their children to school. Okay, this isn't precluding uh, homeschoolers, although there was no need to homeschool in that context because all the schools were ostensibly Christian schools. So this was more about not being lazy and keeping your kids at home, uh, you don't, you know, perhaps working at home, um, get them to the school so that they can learn how to be good Christians and good citizens. Now, this is interesting, though, because he's speaking to who? He's speaking to pastors and preachers, and he said you should especially urge magistrates. What magistrates does he have in mind? Well, we would call the left-hand kingdom magistrates or rulers. It is, in fact, the place of pastors and preachers to urge magistrates to do their duty and to be faithful to their God-given task. Sometimes we get accused of uh, politicizing the pulpit, and well, true enough, you know, there's, there's no place for a pastor to stand up in, in our current context and tell you, you must absolutely vote for this person in this way on this proposition and, you know, down the line. Um, certainly, certainly, it is the purview and the duty of the pastoral office to stand and point out where magistrates are in violation of their God-given responsibilities. There's nothing political about that. Well, it's theological first, political only accidentally, only second. So, I have said and will continue to say, it is a satanic transgression for the state to reach into the church and tell us that we can't sing. When God's word and the Psalms everywhere command us to sing, to make a joyful noise to the Lord, uh, we're going to obey God on this one, not man. And if you want to arrest us for singing to God and singing about love for God and love for neighbor, arrest away. You know, what are we going to do about that? So, um, yes, this, this is very, uh, very much germane to our context to understand this. Um, so, magistrates and parents, uh, both in regard to the fourth commandment, those who rule or have authority, are to be instructed and show them what is their what, why it is their duty to do this and what a damnable sin they are committing if they do not do it. If they do not parent well or rule well, it is a damnable sin, according to Luther. For by such neglect they overthrow and destroy both God's kingdom, that's what we would call the right-hand kingdom, and that of the world, the left-hand kingdom. Unfortunately, what's happened to us in our day and age is we've taken the right-hand and left-hand kingdom to simply be the separation of church and state, which it utterly entirely isn't. And so we've come to such stupid conclusions as, um, well, Christ rules in the right-hand kingdom and the church, but Caesar rules in the left-hand kingdom, and whatever he says is fine and goes. And Christ must just be okay with that. Nothing could be further from the truth. Both the right-hand kingdom and the left-hand kingdom belong 100% to Christ, and if those rulers in the left-hand kingdom will not rule in accordance with the natural law of God articulated in the Ten Commandments, and in such a way that it protects and benefits the church, then they are not ruling faithfully and are indeed committing damnable sin, as Luther says. So, we have to, we have to Scripture puts it in a rather PG way, we need to strengthen weak arms and regain a sense of, hey, God's in control here. And we are ambassadors of God, and we are free to speak into both kingdoms in regard to how this should look. 
All right, so Luther, unafraid to critique both the left-hand and the right-hand kingdom, after all, this is written to pastors and preachers and bishops, critique both authorities in the left and right-hand kingdom when they're failing to do their duty, their duty first and foremost to further the kingdom of God. All right, very bottom of 365 for those following along. They act as the worst enemies, both of God and of the people. Make it very plain to them what an awful harm they are doing if they will not help to train children to be pastors, preachers, clerks, and to fill other offices that we cannot do without in this life. God will punish them terribly for this failure. There is great need to preach this. In this matter, parents and rulers are now sinning in unspeakable ways. The devil, too, hopes to accomplish something cruel because of these things. So why do you think in Luther's context people sent their children on to, on to school? What was the primary goal? Wealth. The same reason we send our kids on to, on to later school. Wealth. We want them to be wealthy so that we don't have to support them and hey, maybe they could support us. <laughs> we drive, our, our, whole, our whole way of looking vocationally has, has been narrowed down to this. Kiddos, I want you to do whatever path is necessary to do so that you can be wealthy. That's it. And Luther would say that's very, very poor parenting, and that's very, very poor governing. We need government and we need parents to identify the skills and gifts that God has given and to train up young people to fill that, the diversity of those positions in the good, for the, I should say, for the good of the nation, for the good of the city, for the good of the community. Okay, and that includes, then, Luther is very interested in having good pastors and preachers, which, of course, we need. And specifically looking at those offices that we cannot do with in this life. Why do, we, why do our politicians act the way they act? Because good fruit doesn't come from a bad tree. Why do we have nothing but bad trees to choose from in office? Because as parents and as government, the, the American people have utterly failed to raise a generation of good, selfless, respectable, objective leaders. So when Luther says God will punish them dearly for this failure, it's like, um, yeah, hello. That's why we call it a swamp. I mean, that simply, that simply shows how lost we are after generation after generation of not intentionally raising our children to be, to be leaders in the, in the left-hand and right-hand kingdoms. Okay, well, could bang on that drum all day. All right, last, Luther's last point before he concludes here. Last, since the tyranny of the Pope has been abolished, people are no longer willing to go to the sacrament. In our own time, in our own time. Well, what was going on here? What was going on here? The Pope was requiring them to go to the sacrament, making a law of it on pain of excommunication. You have to go to the sacrament. To go to the sacrament, you have to go to confession, etc. 
So now that that's been abolished, then people don't even want to go to the sacrament. And thus they despise it. And of course, you know, I want to be sensitive here because there are some in our, in our context who absolutely cannot make it to church um, because they're, you know, they're in such a demographic that if they were to contract uh, coronavirus, that would almost certainly be it for them. So we want to be very lenient and gentle towards those. Uh, but there are, there are others who have this same spirit of, oh, now I have an excuse not to go. I'm not going to go. And so when we identify those, you know, again, this is written to pastors. We have a job to do in that respect. But then just as all Christians, though, when we identify those, we have a, we have a duty to calmly, kindly, gently urge our brothers and sisters back into the way in which they should go. I mean, if you're, if you're going out to eat uh, at restaurants and you're going out you know, for shopping, for things you don't absolutely need, you're going to the if you're going to the gym to exercise <laughs> you you probably you probably ought to go to the sacrament where your lord and savior jesus christ is present for you probably okay so that's uh this is a great a great risk that luther points out even christians can despise and forsake the sacrament he continues here again encouragement is necessary yet with this understanding we are to force no one to believe or to receive the sacrament. Nor should we set up any law, time, or place for it. And that means, you know, Luther's saying, like, you'll have to do it by then or else, or you have to meet this quota by such and such or else. We're forbidden to do that. Instead, preach in such a way that by their own will, without our law, they will urge themselves and, as it were, compel us pastors to administer the sacrament. Is Luther opposed to talking about the freedom of a will as it belongs to a Christian? Nope. He does right here. That by their own will, without our law, they will urge themselves and, as it were, compel us pastors to administer the sacrament. This is done by telling them, when someone does not seek or desire the sacrament at least four times a year, it is to be feared that he despises the sacrament and is not a Christian, just as a person is not a Christian who does not believe or hear the gospel. Okay. So notice Luther's technique here. He doesn't actually set or establish a law, but he just gives a general you know, criteria and then says, if you're not here, then it is to be feared that you're, you despise the, the sacrament or not a Christian. Now this obviously isn't under plague circumstances. Um, so a bit different than our circumstance, but this is a general sort of rule and principle. All right, Luther continues, For Christ did not say, leave this out or despise this, but rather do this as often as you drink it, and other such words. Truly he wants it done and not entirely neglected and despised. Do this, he says. Now, whoever does not highly value the sacrament shows that he has no sin, no flesh, no devil, no world, no death, no danger, no hell. In other words, he does not believe any such things, although he is in them up over his head and his ears and is doubly the devil's own. On the other hand, he needs no grace, 
no life, no paradise, no heaven, no Christ, no God, nor anything good. For if he believed that he had so much evil around him and needed so much that is good, he would not neglect the sacrament by which such evil is remedied and so much good is bestowed. Nor would it be necessary to force him to go to the sacrament by any law. He would come running and racing of his own will, would force himself and beg that you must give him the sacrament. Therefore, you must not make any law about this as the Pope does, only set forth clearly the benefit and harm, the need and use, the danger and the blessing connected with this sacrament. Then the people will come on their own without you forcing them. But if they do not come, let them go their way and tell them that such people belong to the devil who do not regard nor feel their great need and God's gracious help. Yeah, so here is, here is an example of the binding key in use. So when we get to the section on um, absolution, we talk about the key, the loosing key and the binding key, the office of the keys. Here is an example of the binding key, where you meet with impenitent sin. You don't simply shower people with the gospel. Impenitent, sin, impenitent sinners do not get the gospel. That is a confusion of law and gospel. This is in our most basic text. I mean, not only can you find this in the scriptures, but you can find this in virtually every major document of the Book of Concord, explicitly and spelled out, including this, the small catechism, that impenitent people do not receive the gospel or the loosing key. They receive the binding key to be told the, in the way of the law that they remain in their sin. So, here from Luther's own pen, let them go their way and tell them that such people belong to the devil who do not regard nor feel their great need and God's gracious help. But if you do not urge this or make a law or make it bitter, it is your fault if they despise the sacrament. What else could they be than lazy if you sleep and are silent? Therefore look to it, pastors and preachers. Our office has now become a different thing from what it was under the Pope. It has now become a serious and saving office. So it now involves much more trouble and labor, danger and trials. In addition, it gains little reward and thanks in the world. But Christ himself will be our reward if we labor faithfully. To this end, may the Father of all grace help us, to whom be praise and thanks forever through Christ our Lord. Amen. He would have made an interesting district president for the one, for the one month that he served before we all voted him out. <laughs> because that's also why we have bad leaders. We don't want good leaders. We'd prefer to be lazy. So good leaders are called to be good leaders despite that. All right, there's your introduction. There's your introduction to the small catechism. A few other words by way of preface, and next week we'll leap into the Ten Commandments, but a few other words by way of preface. These pages, 13 through 40, the small catechism proper in your 2017 edition, are really to be used as a family manual or as a, or as a family handbook. 
I mean, I, I get that if a, if a wife is very particular about the aesthetics of her, of her dining room table, then this might be negotiable. But the ideal place for the catechism is stuck right in between the salt and pepper shakers. That's the ideal place for the catechism. It's the family manual. It's meant to be um, brought in to the daily lives of people by the head of the household. If you just, if you just open with me very briefly to the Ten Commandments, um, you will see on page 13, uh, this heading, as the head of the family should teach them in a simple way to his household. Now, that heading goes on the top of each of the six chief parts. The first three of the chief parts, hopefully you know already by way of Luther's repetition and my own, the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. Those are the first of the three, of the, excuse me, the first three of the six chief parts. And the last three are easy because they're the sacramental gifts that Christ gives. Baptism, absolution, and the Lord's Supper. Those are the six chief parts. To know the six chief parts is to know the catechism because that's really the outline. So that's what the catechism consists of. Each of these is to be taught by the head of the family to his household. So there is a didactic or a teaching aspect, a, a doctrinal aspect, but not just doctrine in the way of head knowledge, doctrine in the way of the knowledge of the living God, and then how to apply and use that knowledge in daily life. Then what you also see, since this is a family manual, is you see that it is also designed to be a prayer book. If you... If you um, open up to page 30, you'll see that Luther has daily prayers here. And elsewhere, oh yeah, no, it's here. So here, if you look, if you look at the section on daily prayers, you'll see the morning prayer on page 30 and the evening prayer on page 31. Here's what, here's what Luther instructs. So, in the morning, when you get up, make the sign of the Holy Cross and say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Then kneeling or standing, why not lying in bed? Go back to sleep. <laughs> then kneeling or standing, throw your cell phone across the room so you don't check your email. No, that's not in there, but it should be. Because that's the other thing we do as soon as we wake up, is check our email. Right. Kneeling or standing, repeat the creed and the Lord's Prayer. And if you choose, you may also say this little prayer. All right, so what does Luther envision for the Christian life? Every single morning begins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit with marking yourself with the sign of the cross, remembering that baptism by which you are clothed in Christ, Remembering the incarnation of Christ by touching your own flesh. He became flesh of our flesh. Drawing the sign of the cross by which our sins have been atoned for. By which he has declared us righteous in the Father's sight. And then the creed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who he is and what he's done for us. And then the Lord's Prayer. Praying to him in just the way that the Lord has taught us to pray. That's sufficient. If you want to say the morning prayer, say the morning prayer. But again, all of this, all of this can take place in under a minute, under a minute. And then the same thing repeats at night. Look over on page 31. In the evening, when you go to bed, make the sign of the Holy Cross 
and say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is baptismal. We're baptized into this name. Then kneeling or standing, repeat the creed and the Lord's Prayer. If you choose, you may also say this little prayer. So every single day, this is normative for Lutheran spiritualities, that every single day, morning and evening, the day begins and ends with the sign of the cross, the name of God, the remembrance of baptism in Christ and redemption, the creed, who God is and what he's done for us, and the Lord's Prayer, whatever other petitions we feel like we might want to add. But I think that this is, I, I think that very few people, um, very few Lutherans, were, were taught or grew up to believe that morning and evening prayer are the norm. And then with that, you have the meal prayers. And that's if you flip the page, you'll see the meal prayers on page 32. And again, Luther isn't going to be stringent about this, um, that you must say a, a blessing before, ask a blessing before the meal, and then also return thanks after the meal, though many do this. Um, but here, prayer at mealtime. So norm it's normative for a Lutheran Christian to pray five times a day. Okay. And if you're new to this, if the flesh is weak, if maybe it's not your flesh that's weak, but it's that you already got kids up and they're bouncing all over the place and you're scrambling around um, or you're just too exhausted at the end of the night, it really is as simple as make the sign of the cross and say the Our Father. That's, that's a piece of cake. Say, come Lord Jesus at the meals with your families. We end up sometimes at breakfast doing this in shifts because James is up at the crack of dawn like an old man doing push-ups in his room and getting ready for the day. Genevieve slouches down, fully pampered and prepared, hair all done up, about 20 minutes later than she should. That's my kids, so we say the, we say the come Lord Jesus prayer at least twice. Sometimes we say the Lord's Prayer together twice. Uh, it's just the way it goes. So make it work, adapt it for your family, shorten it as you need to shorten it. But this is, this is the foundation for uh, Lutheran spirituality. Morning and evening, mealtime prayers. Okay, as our time draws to a close, I simply want to point out two other resources to you that are foundational to what the Catechism is. If you glance over at page 33, you will see this thing called the Table of Duties. This is a wonderful document because this is the handbook of, of the three estates. Maybe I'll touch on this briefly next week. But the three estates are the family, that's the estate from which all other authority flows, and then the estate of the state, sometimes referred to as the left-hand kingdom, and the estate of the church, sometimes referred to as the right-hand kingdom. So you have three estates and two kingdoms. Luther's table of duty begins with the right-hand kingdom. This is what the scriptures demand of bishops, pastors, and preachers. This is, you can, this is in a sense, a bit truncated. There's more biblical data, but in a sense, this is my job description as a pastor, and this is what you can hold me to. Then likewise, what the hearers owe their pastors. So in the right-hand kingdom, you find yourself to be in the pastoral office, which numerically a very small percentage do, or as a hearer. And even when you're in the pastoral office, you remain a hearer. And so there are, uh, there are these two aspects that, in which you can find yourself. That's the right-hand kingdom. If you flip over to page 34, you're going to see the left-hand kingdom. 
of civil government. Here is what God's Word says the civil government's duties are. And, in response, our duties as citizens. Okay? So this is a family societal handbook. Here's what, it, here's what the right-hand kingdom looks like. Here's what the left-hand kingdom looks like. And now, here's then the third estate, the most foundational estate, that of family, and that begins over on page 35. First and foremost, to husbands. Here's what the scriptures say the role and duty of husbands is. Here's um, what the scriptures say the, the role and duty of wives is. Husband and wife forms the first third of the, uh, of the familial estate. The second third is formed by the relationship of parents to children and children to parents. And the last third refers, uh, flips over to page 36, and refers to workers and employers. You find yourself as either a worker or an employer or as some combination of the two as you add in supervisor. You may be a worker who reports to someone else and a supervisor of others, and so both of these apply to you. Then to youth, to widows, and to everyone. So this, res this resource fleshes out what Lutherans mean by vocation. These are your vocational duties, your callings from God. You find yourself in one or more of these stations in life. And Luther says when it comes time to confess your sins, it's your station in life that you ought to have in mind and be reading that through the lens of the Ten Commandments and then you're going to have plenty of things to confess, plenty of things to be absolved for. And last but not least then, on page 37, the final thing added on to the Catechism. And you'll, know, you'll see that this was not added on until some years later, uh, in 1551. But these are questions and answers um, for those who intend to go to the sacrament. And this is nothing I've done in my own home, although I would love to, and I kind of envision doing that once my kids are young but, but prepared to commune. And that is that the head of the household would simply go through these questions, or an abbreviated form of these questions, um, with all who are preparing for communing the next day. So, do you believe that you are a sinner? Yes, I believe it, etc. Um, in whom do you trust? In Christ, my dear Lord. Basic doctrine. Then it goes down to the words of institution and the questions specific to the sacrament. Namely, what is it, the body and blood of Christ, and what's it for? For the forgiveness of our sins. Alright, so now you can see then how the catechism functions as a family manual. This is the doctrine. This is the prayer. This is the vocation of our family. This is our place and role in society and in this world until God calls us home. Next week, we will jump into the first of the six chief parts, the Ten Commandments. And you will want to bring in one form or another the small catechism and your Bibles. We'll go back to Exodus and look at that. The Lord be with you.